peering through a small gap in his thick curtains, Stephen scanned the pitch-black street below him. It was deserted, the faded black asphalt occasionally glowing in places, bathed in the dim yellow circles of light cast by the street lamps. One last look up and down Union Street gave him all the information he needed. It was time. Grabbing his heavy backpack, Stephen zipped his sweatshirt, pulled the hood over his head, and ducked through his front door, taking care to ease it closed and lock it silently, holding the key with two hands. As he made his way down the narrow hall, he crept carefully around the floorboards that he knew squeaked with the lightest footstep. Finally, he reached the concrete stairwell, and then the empty alleyway that bordered his faded brick apartment complex. Stephen? Yeah, it's me. The voice had emerged from an overflowing dumpster across from the door Stephen was now closing. Stephen's best friend, Jake, emerged from the darkened trash heap. Took you long enough, he muttered, gripping Stephen's arm in greeting. If you had neighbors like mine, you'd be careful too. And before we go, can you roll around in the puddle over there? Shut up, Steve. You said we were incognito, just playing the part. Not that incognito. Christ, you stink. The cops are going to smell you before they hear you. The partners, faces obscured with hoods and laden with slightly clanking backpacks, walked from the alley into the street, creeping close to the shopfront walls and avoiding the intermittent patches of light. Nearly an hour passed as they traveled from the outskirts of the city into the very heart of downtown. Making his way up a narrow flight of steps, Stephen checked the luminous dial of his digital wristwatch. 103. We're late. Jake's reply came from just behind, muffled either by the hood that fell over his face or the slight shortness of breath inflicted by the steep stairs. It's three minutes, so kill us. That's a hell of a walk. Stephen tilted his hood back a few inches and gazed around. This is the spot, I think. Where is everybody? As if in response to his words, a hissing sound came from a few feet away. Whipping their heads around, Stephen and Jake spotted their compatriots crouched behind a copse of bushes that lined the stair railing. The duo hiked their backpacks higher on their shoulders and vaulted the narrow railing to meet the group. Patrick, their leader, greeted them. Way to be on time, guys. Just like work, huh? He quipped with a smile. Stephen rolled his eyes. If Jake here spent a little less time in the refrigerator, the hills wouldn't have been such an ordeal. Jake raised his hand to give a less-than-polite response, but Patrick intervened. Break it up, lovebirds. We're already behind. Everybody knows what to do, right? Five hooded heads nodded in unison, and Patrick smiled. For God and country, right? Let's go, then. As if someone had fired a starter's pistol, the group of five leapt to their feet and scattered outward to different points around the white columned building in front of them. Stephen ran, crouched a little toward the left side of the gigantic structure, simultaneously pulling a large can of red spray paint out of his backpack. Jake, about twenty meters away and near the huge side doors of the building, did the same. As each of them reached their predetermined locations and removed their various colored cans, they began to coat the pristine front of the building with various words, phrases, and cartoon images. If one of the cans of paint ran low, it was quickly tossed into a garbage bag and replaced with a new one from the backpacks. This effort went on for nearly twenty minutes, and before long the front of the building resembled a ramshackle subway station, coated with layers of multicolored graffiti. As the last can was tossed in the garbage bag and it was sealed, the group reconvened at their original meeting point. Slightly out of breath, Jake was the last to vault the railing. 
I can't believe we just did that. Believe it, Patrick replied, his hood barely masking the grin underneath. The message has to get out somehow, and they forced our hand. Well, I hope we took enough precautions, Stephen muttered. Patrick clapped him on the shoulder. We're fine. Let's just get out of here. Remember, separately and fast. Again, five heads nodded with assent, and the group parted with the same coordinated vigor they started with. Forty-five minutes later, Stephen found himself back on Union Street, pressed against the shop-front windows, avoiding the lights. From just behind him, the clattering of aluminum cans made him stop in his tracks. Stephen? Damn it, Jake, you know the rules. What are you doing here? The fear in Jake's voice was evident. Steve? They've already found it. It's on the news. When I got home, I flipped on CNN and there it was. Stephen had already started walking back toward his house. Jake followed him closely. We knew it'd be quick, but it was minutes after we left, apparently. Twitter, Facebook, all of it. It's going crazy. They had reached the alley beside Stephen's apartment, and Stephen turned to face his companion. You want to stay over? You seem pretty rattled. Yeah, thanks. Following the same path that Stephen had taken to their illicit meeting, the duo crept up the staircase, down the hall, and into the apartment. Silently locking the door behind him, Stephen tossed his keys on the couch. You can camp there. I've got to sleep. Jake plopped on the couch and Stephen retreated to his bedroom, both of them fighting the urge to turn on the television and admire the response to their handiwork. After several hours of restless sleep, Stephen returned to the living room to find Jake, wide awake, watching the news. He glanced up at Stephen. Patrick sent the letter. Well, we knew he would, Stephen replied, torn between a feeling of accomplishment and nervousness. That's not all. Look what's happening. Eyes locked on the screen. Stephen refocused his sleep-blurred eyes and realized what Jake was referring to. The newscaster affirmed what his eyes were seeing. Just hours after the unknown vandals covered the east walls of the Capitol building with graffiti, similar events have occurred around the country. In downtown Chicago, a public sit-in blocked traffic in front of the Belfour Theater, and in Boston's historic district, signs were plastered across the front lawn of the governor's mansion. These outcries are united in their goal of protecting the arts from censorship and elimination, but the greatest anomalies, however, are the participants. Historically, actions of this variety have been limited to angered citizens, but this time the uproar has come from within the government itself. Confirming this theory, an anonymous letter has been emailed to our studio explaining the actions of last night as well as the responses nationwide. To read this letter, we go to junior anchor Giles Steinman. Giles? Jake rubbed his eyes. I guess it worked, huh? Stephen reached for the remote, grabbed it, and muted the television. Yeah, well, people are angry. He flipped open his laptop and eyed the PDF file that had been emailed to him a few days before. This is really good, though. It gets the point across, don't you think? Jake unmuted the TV just as the anchor was finishing his detailed analysis of the letter. And the letter seems to be written by a high-level employee in the federal government. He writes, Let me assure the people that we're not just vandals or disgruntled youth. In fact, many of us are dedicated civil servants that have reached our limit, just as countless figures in history have. As the weeks of new leadership have progressed, we have seen countless examples of authoritarian rule creep into our lives, our offices, and even our homes. 
We are constantly told who to believe or who to trust, and we watch, helpless, as many things we love and care for are attacked. History is repeating itself before our very eyes, and something has to be done. In Nazi Germany, artists and performers were strictly controlled. Why? Because Hitler knew that the focus of the arts directly correlates with the rise or fall of an empire. Cuban dictator Fidel Castro jailed many dissenters for anti-Castro art, performances, and speech. China has eliminated any anti-communist performance or art from production. Many people, including our group, used to believe that our country was far removed from this kind of environment. After all, how can it happen in a nation where freedom is guaranteed and liberty is granted as a human right? Last week proved what we feared, an elimination of the very heart of the arts from the federal budget. If passed, gone are the performances that reach millions with their messages. Gone are the groups that inspire, touch, and inform a nation of free individuals and provide them passages for free thought and expression. With this plan, the last bastion of resistance falls, and the country creeps one step closer to the very ideals that countless wars have opposed. You may think, it's not that serious. We did too. Consider this, though. If we become a nation where dissent is silenced and propaganda reigns, what have we become? In a democracy, it is easy to take the arts for granted. Times have changed, though. We need the arts more than ever. If you agree, if you see what so many in the heart of this resistance can see, join us. Even if we fail, find yourself on the side of freedom, the side of kindness, and the side that history records as immovable. The friends, Stephen and Jake, sat in silence as the words they'd read innumerable times were recounted once again. Jake grinned. Immovable, huh? Always, said Stephen, getting to his feet and switching off the TV. Miles away, across a large wooden desk, a well-suited and very nervous man addressed his boss. I think it's just the beginning, sir. Hey guys, Jeremy Schott here, and once again, I hope that you really, truly enjoyed the podcast that you just heard, because like I said at the end of the first episode, I truly do enjoy writing these, and we as a team here at Line of Sight enjoy producing them for you. So I, I truly hope that you not only enjoy them, but you do feel that they accomplish the goal here at Line of Sight, which is, as we say, to tell these stories from behind the headlines, but also to give you that emotional connection to the news that can get really overwhelming sometimes. Speaking of overwhelming, <laughs> I don't know if you've uh, seen the news this week, but uh, of course the podcast was about the cutting of the NEA and the NHA from the federal budget. Of course, there were a lot of very broad and very deep cuts to many social welfare and federal programs that a lot of people depend on. And I will caveat this podcast with telling you that we at Line of Sight are a nonpartisan podcast. We tend to report on things that people feel especially strongly about. And when I say report, I do mean the short stories. We're not a news agency. But we, we tend to talk about things that people feel especially strongly about. And perhaps more than any other, people do feel especially strongly about the arts. They're, they are passionate about them because in many opinions, the arts are something that provide a voice to the people. They give 
Americans the opportunity to express sentiments that they, that they hold in their mind in many different ways. And that is something that is granted as not only a constitutional right, but as a, a personal liberty to every American. And I think when you propose cutting the organizations that fund them, that funds the good changes that come as a result of the arts, you really see some deep historical allegories when you propose cuts like that. It's very difficult to look past those. And I'd actually like to quote an article from the New York Times. It's by a lovely editorial journalist named Eve Ewing, and she made a specific and very eloquently put point. She says, We need the arts because they make us full human beings, but we also need the arts as a protective factor against authoritarianism. In saving the arts, we save ourselves from a society where creative production is permissible only insofar as it serves the instruments of power. When the canary in the coal mine goes silent, we should be very afraid, not only because its song was so beautiful, but because it was the only sign that we still had a chance to see daylight again. Now, I'm not going to tell you that everything is as bad as that sounds, and I'm not going to tell you that it's not. The beauty of this podcast is that they are short stories, and ultimately the decision about how to interpret them is entirely up to you as the listener. But I will leave you with that quote and tell you it's definitely something to think about, and it is definitely a story from behind the headlines. I don't know how many times I can plug that <laughs> in this conclusion, but I'm going to try it one more time. Stories from behind the headlines, line of sight. Now, this is the part where I ask you to subscribe I'm going to do it every time until you do it. It's a button up at the top. If you're on the um, Apple Podcast app, you just hit subscribe. And if you're feeling especially generous, you could go over to the review section and you could leave us a positive review because that's a big deal. That helps people find us. Now, if you're on Android, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm a lifetime Apple user and I have no idea how to use Android. But I assume Google has been kind enough to give you a review option and I would greatly encourage you to do so. Whether the feedback is positive or negative, we want to hear it, because this podcast ultimately is about you and telling you the stories, you guessed it, from behind the headlines. So I think that's all the plugs that I had. And once again, truly, listeners, we thank you for listening to this podcast. It is possible because people want to hear it, and I hope you want to hear the third one, because next Tuesday, it's on its way. Until next time, this is Jeremy Schott, and have a great week. <laughs>